0: Welcome to the Prism. This is the place where modern worldviews, events, and ideas come under biblical scrutiny.
1: So, welcome to the Prism. This is the occasional podcast focusing on contemporary concerns. And in this episode, we're going to be looking at the seemingly common misconception that prevails in modern society, where many people seem to think that all religions are ultimately the same. Just a while back on a popular radio program on BBC Radio Ulster, a member of the public phoned in to declare that he had read the Quran. and he declared it is exactly the same as the Bible. I actually wondered was he literate or, or perhaps intellectually challenged or, or perhaps he was demonstrating by that remark that in fact he hadn't actually read a Bible at all. Let's just put two texts side by side one from Jesus in the Bible and one from Mohammed in the Quran. So Jesus in John 16 verse 2 says The time cometh that whosoever killeth you will think that he doeth God's service. Here's one from Muhammad. It's in Surah 9 and 29. Fight those who believe not in Allah, nor the last day, nor hold that forbidden which hath been forbidden by Allah and his messenger, nor acknowledge the religion of truth, even if they are of the people of the book, until they pay the jizya with willing submission, and feel themselves subdued. So there we have Jesus telling his followers that people will kill them, thinking that they're doing what God wants them to do, and then Muhammad, some 600 years later, telling his followers that they are to fight against the followers of Christ until they're in submission, paying the jizya tax, the payment exacted from non-Muslims, and are to do so until they feel and know that they are slaves of the Muslim world, that they are subdued. Of course, that's just one example chosen by me at random. It's hardly proof of anything there. But as we shall see in this podcast, there is a huge difference, a literary difference, a chronological difference and a deep theological difference between the Bible and the Quran. Now before we begin, I want to state clearly that I am not an expert on Islam. The comments I'm going to make in this podcast are simply derived from reading the Quran itself, albeit in an English translation, which I know some Muslims would deny was reading the Quran at all, for it should be read in Arabic. And I've also been reading some books on comparative religions. I've been listening to lectures from qualified Christian apologists. So with all that clearly understood, let's look briefly at the differences between the Bible and the Quran. Under three headings. Firstly, Muslim claims for Quranic inspiration, and their Islamic hermeneutics, and finally, the relationship between Islam and the Bible. I'm Bob McEvoy and this is the Semper Reformata Podcast. So let's look first of all at Muslim claims for Qur'anic inspiration. The Qur'an is around half the size of the New Testament and it's divided up into surah um, like chapters almost and arranged in order of length. And there's also the Hadith which is the oral tradition of the times of Muhammad which is not considered by Muslims to be a primary source therefore not considered to be inspired in the sense that the Quran is considered to be. The Hadith are used by Muslim scholars and Imams to interpret and reinterpret the Quran. They consist of a series of redacted anecdotes in many volumes, allegedly from Muhammad himself, from his family, from his wives, from his early followers. Some parts of the Hadith are the words of Allah spoken by the Prophet, and as such they might be regarded as inspired by some Muslims. Most of the Hadith are secondary to the Quran. It simply explains how and when various verses of the Quran came to Muhammad. And frankly, such a book is probably necessary, given that the Quran is almost completely incomprehensible in parts. The Quran is written in Arabic, And only the Arabic version is supposed to be inspired. English translations, uh, according to Muslim scholars, are not actually the Quran at all. And that's why Muslim boys must learn Arabic. But only Arabic proficient scholars are capable or permitted to comment on or to interpret the Quran. That's why you can't buy a critical text version or a Quran with a concordance. No critical examination of the Quran is actually permitted. At the time of writing this script, a project in the United States to provide an English text Quran with textual notes has been stalled for nearly 10 years due to threats of violence issued to the scholars involved. Yet the Quran is in fact in its third edition. As ancient manuscripts come to life, we find out that there were earlier significant changes to the originals. Someone has added edited material to the original writings of Muhammad. But of course, you probably won't get a Muslim to admit that. Dr. James White, who is an expert, a prominent expert on Islam, writes, Belief in the perfection of the Quran precludes by definition interest in the study of its earliest manuscripts, as it is considered impious to entertain even the possibility that its early manuscripts differ in the slightest from the modern version. For Muslim orthodoxy, the Quran as it exists in Arabic today is exactly as it came into existence in the decades after Muhammad's death. Muslims believe that the Quran has always existed, as long as Allah has existed, and he, they claim, is eternal. It was written by Muhammad, but a Muslim will tell you that Muhammad had no part in its composition. He simply wrote what? Allah, their God, dictated to him. It's a bit like what Joseph Smith said when he received the Book of Mormon, allegedly, from the angel Moroni. It took Allah one night, apparently, to dictate it to the Prophet through the angel Gabriel. And it took the Prophet, over 22 years, apparently, to write it down. So, how do Muslims interpret the Qur'an? Let's look for a wee moment at some basic Islamic hermeneutics. When Christians seek interpretation of a difficult or unclear verse or passage in the Bible, they do so in a very specific way. They compare scripture with scripture, and they make careful consideration of the textual and historical context of the passage they're reading. Muslims too have their way of dealing with difficult Quranic text. They call it the doctrine of abrogation. Basically, if you can go through the Quran and place all the surahs into chronological order as they were given to Muhammad, then the earlier revelations are abrogated, or cancelled out, I suppose, by the later revelations. So Surah 2, 106 specifically teaches this. Surah 2, 106 says, We do not abrogate a verse or cause it to be forgotten, except that we bring forth one better than it, or similar to it. Do you not know that Allah is, over all things, competent? So, for example, the Quran teaches that the people of the book, that's Christians and Jews, are to seek to live at peace with Muslims. And then later texts abrogate that or cancel it out. Let's look at the following examples. In Surah 2 and 256, it says there shall be no compulsion in religion. The right course has become clear from the wrong. So whosoever disbelieves in false deities and believes in Allah has grasped the most trustworthy handhold with no break in it. Surah 109 verse 1 to 6 Say, O disbelievers, I do not worship what you worship, nor will I be a worshipper of what you worship, Nor will you be worshippers of what I worship, for your is your religion, and for me is my religion. So what happens to non-Muslims if they don't pay the inflated tribute tax, the jizya, that Islam demands of them? Surah 9, 4-5 Accepted are those with whom you made a treaty among the infidels, and then they have not been deficient toward you in anything or supported anyone against you, so complete for them their treaty until their term. Indeed, Allah loves the righteous. And when the sacred months have passed, then kill the infidels wherever you find them. Capture them and besiege them, and sit and wait for them at every place of ambush. But if they should repent, establish prayer, and pay tribute tax and let them go their way, indeed, Allah is forgiving and merciful. Surah 8, 67. It is not for a prophet to have captives of war until he inflicts a massacre in the land. Some Muslims desire the commodities of this world but Allah desires the hereafter and Allah is exalted in might and wise. When Muhammad was the leader of a small religious group seeking acceptance around Mecca, the parts of the Quran written by him were quite conciliatory. The later texts, written when he had defeated the other tribes and removed their idols from the Kaaba, that black box that they walk around during their pilgrimage, they were much more belligerent. Islamic scholars believe that Surah 9, very close to the beginning of the Quran, is actually the last surah given by Allah to the Prophet. So look at some of the verses in this final revelation, which abrogates all other conflicting verses in the Quran. Surah 9, verse 3 to 5, proclaim a woeful punishment to the unbelievers. 9, 4, except to those idolaters who have honoured their treaties with you in every detail and aided none against you. With these, keep faith until their treaties have run their term. Allah loves the righteous. Surah 9 and 5, the so-called verse of the sword. These were the verses used and quoted by Islam bin Laden to justify his war in the West. Here they are. When the sacred months are over, slay the idolaters wherever you find them. Arrest them, besiege them, lie in ambush everywhere for them. If they repent and take the prayer, and render the alms levy, allow them to go their way. Surah 9 and 14, fight them. Allah will punish them by your hands and will disgrace them and give you victory over them and satisfy the breasts of a believing people. Surah 9 and 29, fight those who do not believe in Allah or in the last day. And who do not consider unlawful what allah and his messenger have made unlawful and who do not adopt the religion of truth from those who were given in the scripture fight until they give the jizya willingly while they are humbled surah 9 and 23 o prophet fight against the disbelievers and the hypocrites and be harsh upon them and their refuge is hell and wretched is the destination Sura nine one two three O you who have believed, fight those adjacent to you of the disbelievers, and let them find in you harshness and know that Allah is with the righteous. Those are the final revelations and under the law of abrogation they cancel out any conflicting verses written in earlier times. Let's think about Islam and the Bible. Because Muslims will tell you that the Bible as we have it today is corrupted by its transmission. They argue that since there are parts of the Bible that are directly opposed to the teaching of the Quran, then the Bible must be wrong since the Quran is always right. Therefore the Bible must have been corrupted since, according to them, it started as a Muslim book and has been changed. Of course it's an inconsistent position to take. The Old Testament as we have it is exactly what was available in Muhammad's day. The New Testament canon was fully established by the unanimity of the Western Church by the 4th century, over 200 years before Muhammad was born, and it has remained substantially unchanged from that day to this. The Bible of Muhammad's day is the Bible of today. You Now let's contrast the Quran with the Bible. The Bible is 66 books, written over 1,500 years, containing different genres of literature, historical, didactic, poetic, apocalyptic and so on. It was written in different generations and regions, and yet there are themes and prophecies and thought processes that run all the way through it, tying it into a unified whole. Muslims believe that Allah dictated and Muhammad simply wrote down his words. Christians, on the other hand, believe that God inspired the writers. They believe that as, for example, Paul was writing his own words to, for example, the Ephesian church, to commend them and correct them that God was inspiring his work. The essential point to be grasped is that when men wrote the scriptures, their statements did not originate in their own thinking, but they were put into their minds by the direct action of the Holy Spirit. They wrote the word of God in the sense that they wrote words that came directly from God. This is what the Westminster Confession means when it says that the original text of the Bible was immediately inspired by God. Thus when Paul wrote, for example, I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart in Romans 9 and 2, While he was certainly expressing his own feelings and his desire to express that sorrow and the words with which he expressed it and perhaps even the very sorrow itself, those were put into his heart by the Holy Spirit. Christians too confess that their scriptures are infallible that they are inspired and inerrant in the original, but unlike the Muslims, they want to see the Bible placed into the hands of every man in his own spoken language. Second Timothy 3 and verse 16 says that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent and equipped for every good work. 2nd Peter 1 and verse 20 to 21 knowing this first of all that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit Dr James White again in the book what every Christian needs to know about the Quran helps us to put this in perspective He says Christians also believe the original manuscripts of the Bible were inspired, but they do not claim inspiration for subsequent copies. They see God's providential protection of the biblical text in the wealth and consistency of the manuscripts produced over the early centuries of the faith rather than in any one single manuscript or inspired version. This confidence in God's protection of the text over time has led to a willingness among Christian scholars to engage in detailed examination of the earliest manuscripts of the Bible, both Old Testament and New Testament. Christian scholarship thus looks forward to more findings of ancient biblical manuscripts, while remaining increasingly confident in the accuracy of the biblical text. But then, Isn't there violence in the Bible? We see some of the violent texts and we've read some of the violent texts in the Quran and some people will say there's violence, similar violence in the Bible, ordered by the Judeo-Christian God and carried out by his followers, secularists and humanists will often argue that all religion is wrong, for all religions have inflicted death and injury on mankind. They will point, for example, to the book of Joshua, where Joshua captured the land of Israel by driving out the people of the land and by utterly defeating them in bloody military conflicts. They will cite incidents like the destruction of the Amalekites in First Samuel 13 and verse 7 where Samuel gives this command to Saul, Now go and attack Amalek, and utterly destroy all that they have, and do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, infant and nursing child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Secularists use that passage and others to try to demonstrate that the Bible is every bit as bloodthirsty as the Quran is. Christians don't need to fear those accusations. They are born out of total ignorance of biblical hermeneutics. Here's why. Those passages are set in an historical context. Unlike the Quran, the Bible is an historical book. It's written over many centuries, and the books that are in it are rooted in their historical milieu. The Amalekites, for example, were one of the most bloodthirsty and wicked nations on earth. Their destruction was essential for the survival of other races. The Qur'an's commands to Muslims to fight against non-Muslims are not set in any historical setting. They are for all time and they are for every Muslim. The second thing we need to note about those biblical passages is that they are descriptive they are not prescriptive. Because these passages are historical, the instructions given to Joshua or Saul to wage war on unbelievers is given only in the context of Joshua's invasion, of the Amalekite threat. They're not general instructions given to Christians. In fact, Christians are taught to love their enemies and to pray for those who despitefully use them. Those warlike passages in the Quran are clearly prescriptive, clearly an unambiguous call to wage war on unbelievers without any reference whatsoever to mitigating circumstances. Of course, some moderate Muslims may argue that the implications of Surah 9 are given in the context of self-defence that Muslims should only fight when they are persecuted but there is a doctrine that encourages Muslims to stir up aggravation in host nations so that they can claim persecution and then respond in violence. So Muslims simply will not assimilate into host communities. They will demand that societies accommodate them, for example, by incorporating Sharia law into society. When the host community objects to this intrusion on their way of life, the Muslims are then permitted to react in violence, to claim racism and Islamophobia, and they are backed by other Islamic countries. Surah 8.72-75 and particularly 74 says, but those who have believed and emigrated and fought in the cause of Allah and those who give shelter and aided, it, it is they who are the believers truly, for them is forgiveness and noble provision. So I hope that short examination of Islamic hermeneutics, how they understand their scriptures, And a comparison, a very short comparison, with how we understand our Christian scriptures. I hope that's helpful. And I hope that you will be encouraged to look and read and research more into these very important differences. If there's anything that we need to take from this and to remember, it's to remember that our scriptures are not at all like the Quran. And they are not interpreted as the Quran is.